verses 15 through 22. That is the passage for today. And let's hear what the Lord has to say. The word of the Lord reads, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. At, uh, we're no longer in our Christmas series any, anymore, and every year, this last Sunday of the year is just kind of an open week, and I normally preach in it, so Joel just lets me choose whatever, which is always a dangerous proposition. So this week, you know, we're going we're gonna to talk about something that's been weighing on my heart throughout 2020, and it's probably weighed on some of your hearts as well. In, 1980, in 1981, in his book, A Christian Manifesto, Francis Schaeffer issued this warning. He said this, If there is no final place for civil disobedience, then the government has been made autonomous. And as such, it has been put in the place of the living God. Now in that book, Francis Schaeffer gives us an introduction into what the Bible teaches about how we as Christians should interact with the government and an overview of Christian history in thought on this issue. How should we as Christians think about the relationship between the church and the state? And this warning he gives us is a really real warning throughout world history and even up to today, is there's always this push to turn the government into God. And if the Christian starts treating the government as God, or as autonomous, with no checks, no balances, no limitations, then we in effect make it God. And I know that as I uh, speak about this this morning, talking about politics from the pulpit, especially in our very, very divided age, that this could go really badly. And it might. <laughs> but if the church refuses to instruct her sheep about this issue, then we leave the sheep to the wolves. And I'm afraid far too many pastors for far too long have done just that. So our people get... Uh, get their talking points and their thinking from those who do not know God and who do not submit to Christ. And there are two ditches I really want to avoid this morning. I'm going to try my best to avoid these two ditches and stay, stay on, on the narrow path. And the first ditch we must avoid is turning the church into a political rally. Only cherry-picking certain texts we want to make our own political ideology fit, and that just turns into a certain kind of idolatry. We don't want to do that. That's not my heart. That's not my desire. But there's a second ditch we also need to avoid, and this one can sound a whole lot more holy, a whole lot more pious, and, but it's just as idolatrous in the end. And that's building some sort of wall between the church and the state that the founders never intended and the Bible certainly does not allow, and which says the church should never talk about this, should never talk about these issues. 
And what that's really saying is, is I don't want God telling me what to do over here. And that's also idolatry. It can sound holy, but it means I don't want to listen to God over here. So we're going to try to avoid, avoid those two ditches because 2020, as it finally comes to an end, has brought many concerns to the forefront. And for me, one of the greatest concerns I've witnessed has been the behavior of our elected officials. This year has seen one-man rules set up in just about every state of the union at some point, and this has been done both by Republicans and by Democrats. And both of them were wrong when they did it. We've seen those laws that our government is supposed to follow. We have no due process, no checks and balances, a disregard for state and federal laws, a disregard for the United States Constitution. We have governors and mayors who tell us when we can leave our homes, under what conditions we can leave our homes, what we have to wear when we leave our homes, and what businesses get to su or survive, and which ones get to go bankrupt. And that has led to many interesting questions. I'm sure you've thought through some of these questions. I certainly have. And a common response throughout 2020 from Christian leaders has been to point to Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, and then that's it. That's the end of the discussion. Submit to the ruling authorities no matter what. Well, that's a really jaded and incomplete picture of what the Bible teaches. And it shows us that not only do we not know our Bibles well as Christians in America, but we've also forgotten our own history. It's not too much for me to say that the reason we are able to gather here today on many different levels is because of a long, storied history of civil disobedience. The Christians of the first, first couple centuries, they were told by Rome, you must worship Caesar. You must offer sacrifices to Caesar. You can still worship Jesus, but you also have to worship Caesar. And the early church said, no, we're not going to do that. And if they hadn't have done that, then the church wouldn't be here today. The Protestants in the 15s and 1600s, there was this marriage between the Roman Catholic Church and all of the state governing authorities. And people like Martin Luther came onto the scene and said, no, the Catholic Church has it wrong. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is this. And they arrested him, and they put him on trial, and they said, recant, or else. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. My conscience is bound to Scripture, and Scripture alone. If Martin Luther had not done that, then we would not have the Protestants like we are here today. As Baptists, this gets even more interesting. Baptists never had their own country or their own state or their own colony here in the United States where they had protection. So even here at the founding of this country, Baptists were persecuted again and again. They did not get the license to preach, but they preached nonetheless. The state said, you cannot do this. They said, no, we're going to do it. And if they hadn't have done that, Riverview Baptist Church would not be here today. And then, of course, as Americans, uh, over and against England, if, Amer if the American founding fathers would not have said that we are not going to obey King George anymore, then, well, our country would not be here. And even with a more recent history, we are able to gather here today people of many different ethnicities integrated together because those in the civil rights movement practiced civil disobedience. So it's not too much for me to say that without civil disobedience, we wouldn't be here today on many, many levels. 
And that is something we must not forget. And that throughout 2020, with all of these things that have happened, all of these edicts that have come down from on high, and they've come down from in response to a very real threat, and in response to wanting safety, and probably inspired by good desires and good hearts, but the fallout has been absolutely devastating on multiple levels. And Schaefer's question has been ringing in my mind throughout this year. Christians have to ask themselves the question, where's the line, and where do we say enough is enough? Otherwise, if we don't have that line, then the state pretty much becomes God, and we can't have that. Now, this is an important question, not just because of 2020. As I've looked back in this year, I've seen a church that because we have enjoyed such freedom and liberty for so long in America, that we haven't thought about these issues and we've got, been caught flat-footed. And my, my concern, though, for this year is also moving forward. Because there is, without question, it's not even being hidden, there is a gathering storm on the horizon over whether or not religious liberty is going to continue in this country. There are those who are openly advocating for silencing anybody who will not get in line with the current sexual revolution. I don't know if they're going to win those political fights or not. doesn't matter. But it does mean that God has given us in 2020 a test case so that we think through these things and prepare ourselves for what's coming down the line. The inconsistencies we've seen this year has made a divided country and a tense situation worse. We have small businesses who've been forced to shut down when they could probably only hold a 10 to 20 people in their businesses, while we've seen these big box retailers with hundreds or thousands of people in their stores getting rich. We've been told that things like liquor stores, marijuana shops, casinos, abortion clinics are essential, but churches, not so much. We've been told that when your loved one dies, you don't get to have a funeral. No funerals allowed. Or if so, they have to be limited to a really small number. But politically expedient funerals and memorials were allowed to have hundreds, if not thousands, presents. For example, George Floyd or John, Representative John Lewis. We even had recently in California, it's always California, isn't it? A court ruled that strip clubs could be open because of the First Amendment. Churches, not so much, but strip clubs, yeah, that's in the First Amendment. So we can take these mandates and we can think about all the different angles, and I'm sure a lot of you have thought about them, all the different inconsistencies, and we wonder, what should we do as Christians? Moreover, can we take them seriously when so many of our scientists and politicians who've been giving them to us have been caught flagrantly disobeying their own rules that are necessary for your safety, but not theirs? So again, I want to offer a little bit of a caveat here. I am not up here arguing that COVID-19 doesn't exist. I am not up here arguing that it's a scam. It is a substantial risk to certain demographics of our population, and we should be concerned for them. We don't want to see anyone die. But we also know that for many demographics of our population, it's less of a risk than many of the risks we exist with every single day. We don't want to minimize the lives that have lost, and yet we know as Christians that it's always a trade-off. People die every year because we live in a broken and a fallen world, and there will be no perfect solution until Jesus comes back. 
And if we try to grasp at safety too tightly, we end up making other mistakes. And Richard Weaver warned us of this search for safety in exchange of freedom in the 1960s when he wrote this. He says, The past shows unvaryingly that when a people's freedom disappears, it goes not with a bang, but in silence amid the comfort of being cared for. That is the dire peril in this present trend toward statism. What's statism? It's making the state God. The state says, here, I will make your life easy. I will make it safe. Just give me your freedom and I will save you. And there you should be hearing Schaefer's question again. Where is the line? So as we think about that, Matthew 22, 15 through 22, I think gives us a framework. And it gives us a good introduction as to the Christian understanding of the relationship between the individual and the state and the church in the state. The Pharisees, they approach Jesus and they ask him a trick question. They know that either way Jesus answers this question, he's in trouble. So he says, do we have to pay taxes to Caesar? And if Jesus says, no, you don't have to do that, they can run over to the Roman guard, have him arrested, and rightfully put to death for insurrection. But if Jesus says, yes, you have to pay your taxes to Caesar, he's going to lose all of his support among the Jews who are being oppressively taxed and taken advantage of. So they think they've got a gotcha with Jesus. They should have known better at this point. And his famous answer is, render, that is, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. And what Jesus does here is he affirms two things that we cannot miss. He affirms on the one hand, the government does have authority. He affirms Caesar's authority. And on the other hand, he also limits it. So there are four truths I want us to see from this passage here this morning. We're going to go through those, and we'll try to make some applications on the other side. And the first, the first truth from this text is that, what I just said, the government does have some authority. It does. Jesus affirms the authority even of a wicked and evil Roman imperial government to collect taxes. The Roman denarius that Jesus asks for, it has Caesar's image on it, and Jesus asks for it. He says, look, whose picture's on this? It's Caesar's. And he says, therefore, Caesar has a rightful claim to ask for that back through taxes. To put it another way, Christianity in no way, shape, or form supports anarchy or wanton rebellion or wanton disrespect to governing officials. And yet we have to ask, where does Caesar's authority come from? Is it inherent to who Caesar is? Does it just emanate from who he is and how great and excellent he might be. Surely he thought so. But the biblical answer to that question is unquestionably no. All authority in this world is derived or delegated or contingent upon the ultimate authority who is God. This includes husbands leading their wives, parents over their children, employers over their employees, or pastors over their flock, and governing officials over their people. To put it another way, no earthly authority is ultimate. No earthly authority is the source of its own authority. All are ultimately accountable to God 
himself. And Paul explains this more in Romans 13, verses 1 through 3. He writes this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. The text is plain. Your default position, my default position, is submission to the governing authorities. That's always where we start. And to wrongly disobey governing authorities is to not only sin against them, but to sin against God. And yet this text says that all the authority they have is given to them by God, and then Paul says they are the servant of God. Some of your translations might say they are the minister of God. It's the same word uh, that we see for deacon or minister or servant throughout the New Testament. Paul says the government is God's minister. That is, God is over them, and they are to be doing God's work. We still have echoes of this thinking in terms like prime minister. You have in Europe in particular, that someone is a prime minister. They're supposed to be doing God's work. We have echoes of it in our language with a public servant. They're a servant serving who? Serving ultimately God. And this affirms that they are accountable to him. He is the master, and they are the servant. So in summary, our first point, we are to obey lawful commands from the government because to do so is to obey our God. And to disobey those commands is to disobey our God. And that is no small thing. The second truth we see from Matthew 22 is the government is not God. This is a crucial distinction that Christ makes. When he says, give to Caesar his, and give to God what is his, he is separating the two. He's making a distinction between the emperor and God himself. They are different power structures. They operate in different spheres of our lives. We take this reality that the government is not God for granted. Yet throughout world history, that wasn't always so. You think about terms like your excellency or your highness ascribing some level of divinity to governing authorities. We see this in Scripture. Pharaoh claimed that he was divine. He was connected to the sun god, Ra. And as God sent his many plagues upon Egypt, he told the Israelites and the Egyptians that one reason I am sending these plagues is so that you would know that the Lord alone is God. That is, all those plagues were meant to show you that the Egyptian gods were not God, culminating in the death of the firstborn of Pharaoh. That he is not God. Caesar, as I've said before, he also claimed divinity and worship and sacrifices. You go to the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, the beast and the false prophet seek to deify the government and command everyone to bow down to its image instead of the image of the living God. The government, and there's not too much to say, throughout world history, has been one of Satan's main, tool, main tools to oppose and oppress God's people. So the tension in Jesus' answer here should not be missed. When he asks for that Roman coin, 
the denarius, not only does it have an image of Caesar on it, but it also has an inscription underneath it that says, the Son of God. You have Jesus, who's walking around during the gospel saying he's the Son of God. He's looking at a coin that says Caesar is the Son of God. That Caesar is God. And he gives them the coin, and he says, give to Caesar his, and to God his. It's a subversive answer. He is saying, Caesar is not God. You see, if Jesus were standing before Caesar, and he would say this, that he would say this to Caesar, Caesar would not agree with him. He would not agree that there are certain things he does not have a claim to. And we may think that people don't bow down and worship the government as God anymore. And for the most part, in America, that's true. It still happens throughout the world. There are still governing authorities who claim to be divine across our world today. But functionally, it does happen. Because when you remove God from the equation, something always takes its place. Something always becomes the God of the system. And I think this has been put on full display throughout this year. We have elected officials and scientists with their models and their projections, and we cry out to them to save us. And if anything, 2020 should have shown us that they can't do it. 15 days, guys, and we'll have this all under control. No, you're not God. You can't save us. When tragedy comes again and again, we cry out not to God, but to politicians, and we say, please save us. And they can't because they're just like you. So Christians, we must never formally or functionally replace God with the government or with politicians. The government and politicians always make vile and oppressive gods. Good government matters. Bad government hurts. This is not to say these things are not important. The government has the power to be a tool of tremendous good or the greatest forms of evil we've ever seen. But government and politics is not ultimate because it is not God. It is to operate within a specific sphere of authority. And when it goes outside of that, you're not supposed to listen to them. That leads us to our third point. We see that the government is limited in its authority precisely because it is not God. So Jesus states this plainly. Some things belong to Caesar, and some things belong to God. And the thrust of his answer is, is that Caesar does not have claim upon everything. Moreover, the truth of the matter is, a form throughout Scripture, if you know, we know that everything ultimately does belong to God. Even that Roman coin that Jesus grabs ultimately is his and not Caesar. That God always has a claim on absolutely everything. And that's exactly why the government wants to be your God. Knowing that the, lim that the government is supposed to be limited in its authority, so we then have to ask the question, where's the limit? Does the government have the right to command you to do something that is evil? Well, if it is God, then yes, it can. If it is not God, then no, it can't. And that is exactly why we have the long line of civil disobedience in Scripture, despite clear commands that you should obey the government. You have the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1. Pharaoh says, kill the Hebrew children. 
They go to the Hebrew um, women as they're having children. They don't kill the babies, and they go back and say, they had the kids too fast. We couldn't kill them. Pharaoh, for some reason, believed them. And God blessed them for their disobedience. David, King David, before he was king, would not submit to Saul who wanted to kill him. Shouldn't you obey your king, the anointed king of Israel? No, he doesn't. Daniel, in Babylon, is told that he cannot pray to God. So what does he do? He goes and he finds the window where everyone can see him praying, and he prays three times a day. And God saves him from the lions. The apostles, before the Jewish leaders in the book of Acts, the Jewish leaders say, you cannot preach this Jesus anymore. And they say, well, who should we listen to? You are God. We just went through Christmas. Mary and Joseph are warned by an angel that King Herod wants to kill all the children in the area. Do they stay and listen? No. They flee, and God saves his Messiah. Even Christ got in on the civil disobedience. He goes into the temple courtyard, ruled by the Jewish leaders, and he starts turning over tables and chasing people around with a whip. And they come up to him afterwards, and they say, Give us a sign as to why you have this authority to do this. In other words, you just undermined our authority. That temple is ours. You don't get to do that. So while our disposition must be toward obedience, we see Scripture teaches us it's not a blind obedience. God tells you to do something, you do it no matter what. The government tells you to do something, you have to ask yourself some questions first. Because all authority in this world is limited, whether it's husbands, parents, teachers, pastors, our governing authorities. Because we know that though God has instituted structures and hierarchies in this world, that often it is those things that are abused. And it's the most wretched things that we see when those things are abused. God is diametrically opposed to the abuse of authority. So let me give you an example of this of this idea of authority within a sphere. Let's say you just got some Christmas money or a gift card and you're out shopping for a new pair of jeans. You're like, I really need a new pair of jeans. And as you're looking, you land on a certain pair and all of a sudden you look up and you see your, your tall and slightly awkward pastor walking by. And I go, well, what are you doing? You go, I'm, I'm here to buy these jeans. I really like these jeans. I go, oh, let me see them. I take a look at the jeans and I go, these aren't Levi jeans. You can't buy these. You can only buy Levi's jeans. And you go, surely you're not serious. And I look at you and I say, the Bible says obey your pastors. You can only buy Levi's jeans. What should you do at that point? Well, you should double check to see if I'm joking. <laughs> if I'm not, you should probably try to get me fired or find a new church. Sometimes pastors forget that their spheres of authority are also limited. Unless you think that that is absurd, have we not reached that level this year? We've had mayors tell people under what conditions you can go for a walk or not. What you have to wear wherever you go. Who you can have into your own house. The list could go on and on. And all of this thinking comes from knowing that the government is just not God. And he does not have the right to tell you to do anything and everything that he wants. 
And this is especially important when it comes to the church. The church is an institution started and founded by God through the work of Jesus Christ. God is the head of the church in Christ, not the state, not the pastors, not the elders, not the congregation. The highest authority is Christ. And this is enshrined in our First Amendment. The government has no place to tell individuals how they worship God, when they worship God, how many people gather together when they worship God. It has no right to stand between you and your Creator. The fourth thing we see, because the government is not God, because it is not limited, and because it is populated by sinners, there is a place for civil disobedience. Again, think about that word Protestant. It means to protest. We are here because our forefathers protested. Protestantism was born out of civil disobedience. If Luther had obeyed the state, the gospel of Jesus Christ would have been lost. And he would have sinned against God. Brave men like Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin practiced civil disobedience, and we reap the benefit. And there's always been a strong tradition of that in the West because of the influence of Protestant thinkers. And that probably came to its pinnacle here in America. So the natural question then becomes, okay, Levi, I grant it to you, there are times in, when we can, in which we can disobey the government. But when and where and under what conditions? I think the Bible's clear here on some of these things, but I want to give you three categories. Three categories for our relationship to the government. The first is this. There are laws which you as a Christian must disobey. Before God, you are bound to disobey the state. You are required to obey him instead of man because God is higher than the state. John Calvin put it this way. The Lord is the king of kings who must alone be heard. If they, that is the government, command anything against him, let it go unesteemed. So if the state commands you to murder, you have to disobey. If it commands you to disobey God in any way, you must disobey. If he commands you to lie, you must disobey. If he commands you to not gather together as the people of God, you must disobey because you are bound before God to obey him. Our brothers and sisters... Enclosed countries know this. They've had to wrestle with this. There is a severe crackdown on faithful churches going on right now in China. They know this because they live it every day. We've forgotten it because we've been blessed with freedom. Obedience to evil laws cannot be excused by appealing to God or Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2. The second category... There are righteous laws operating within the correct sphere of authority which Christians must obey. First one, you must disobey. These are laws you must obey. And if you disobey these laws, you are not just disobeying the government, but God. The government has the right to tax you. It has the right to tell you not to kill your neighbor. It has the right to tell you not to rape, not to steal, not to do all of those things. And you should obey the government when he tells you to do those things. In these circumstances, you are not free before God to do whatever you want. But this world is, uh, 
is not always that clear cut. So there's a third category. First, ones you must disobey. Second, ones you must obey. Third, there are laws because they are immoral or, they, or because the government is operating outside of its correct authority where you are free to disobey them. You're not required to disobey them because in obeying these laws you are not sinning yourself, but you are free to disobey these laws. And when you look at such laws, the more heinous the overreach or the more abuse or evil that is being done, the more weight the Christian should give to this disobedience. Basically, in this category you're considering, is this issue, this civil disobedience here, worth the cost? Is it something worth fighting over? I'll give you two examples of this from our own history. First is the American Revolution and the slogan, no taxation without representation. I've just established for you again and again, the government has the right to tax you and you should pay those taxes. So what what were the founding fathers thinking? Why were they rebelling against this? Well, it wasn't the taxation that was the problem. It was the lack of representation. King George was violating the laws that were above him, the British laws that were above the king that he was supposed to obey, that required British citizens to have representation in the governing process. So our founding fathers, after working for years to try to get him to obey the laws and respect their rights, decided they could no longer obey him. Them merely paying the tax, they were not sinning. And yet the government was outside of its due authority and was doing something evil and oppressive, so they were justified in disobeying. We see the same thing in the book of Acts. Happens twice to Paul. The first time, he's captured and he's beaten uh, by a Roman governing official. Afterwards, he goes, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do that. I have rights as a Roman citizen. And this guy's, oh, no. So he he hustles uh, Paul out of town so that no one knows. The second time Paul's taken to get beaten for preaching the gospel, he tells them before they beat him, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't just beat me up. I have rights. It would, have been, it would not have been sinful for Paul to sit there and take it. But what the government was doing was wrong. A second example we have, I think, is the civil rights movement. Jim Crow laws and segregation laws were wicked. They were evil. And anyone who voted for them or supported them or enforced them in their businesses was sinning. A white person who owned a business who put up a sign that said no blacks allowed was sinning. But the African American living in the South walking by and sees a sign up that says no blacks allowed was not required before God to go in there and disobey. They might have looked at that and said, yeah, that's not really worth it. I don't want to go through all that and just keep walking. But eventually, they banded together and they practiced civil disobedience. And through that, the laws were exposed as evil and heinous, and they were overturned. So this is a messy world, and the government can be that tremendous force for good or that tremendous force for evil. It is good when it functions in its rightful place, its rightful sphere of authority, and it is evil every time it tries to replace God with itself. Sometimes disobedience to the government is obedience to God. One of Thomas Jefferson's favorite quotes, he got from a Presbyterian Scottish minister named John Knox, and it was this, resistance against tyranny 
is obedience to God. That's a very Protestant way of thinking. And I dare say a very biblical way of thinking. So there's your, there's your biblical principles. And we, we lay those out and we realize that in a year like this year, we were kind of caught flat-footed. We weren't prepared to think through these things and we want to always give each other a grace as we talk about these things. Uh, some of these things we'll, we'll close on. You realize that these are where Levi has landed. These are my convictions as I study the Bible and I look at the situation and we have probably people here who would disagree with me. We probably even have minor disagreements among our staff on this. But the goalposts this year have constantly changed. The contradictions have multiplied and we have to ask these questions. Does the government have the right to declare what is essential and what isn't? And why does the list of essential things look so much like a secular dream list of abortion, drugs, alcohol, big businesses, and casinos? As Christians, we must keep that limited view of government because we know it's not autonomous. We know that throughout this year, many churches have stood up. John MacArthur in L.A. has been the most obvious example, and they've said, no, you don't have the right to tell the church when she can or cannot meet. He's been sued, he's faced harsh backlash, both outside of the church and inside of the church. But recently, the Supreme Court has handed down several different rulings, three or four, I believe, that have said, you know what, the Constitution still applies during the time of crisis. You can't tell churches they can't meet. For that, we are very thankful, but it reminds us that John MacArthur and those other churches were right. They were right from the beginning. And applying these principles, to our context, we really see that there are two sides of the question we have to ask. And the first one we've been dealing with this entire message is before God. What is our responsibility before God? And that is what MacArthur initially appealed to. God says we have to meet, so we're going to meet. The second question we have to ask is how is it applied within our system of government? To put it plainly, who is Caesar? If we have to give to Caesar that which is his, then we need to naturally ask ourselves, who is Caesar? Who are we giving this to? Many, I think, would be quick to say people like mayors or governors or presidents or maybe even the Supreme Court are Caesar. And there's an element of truth to that. But there is no really one-for-one -one comparison between Rome and us today. Our system is very different. We have three equal branches of government who are supposed to be constantly checking one another so no abuses happen. We have different levels of government, federalism, state, local, and national authority. And above all that, we have this crazy experiment in America known as self-government. That is, every one of you, at least if you're of voting age, are delegated a certain amount of authority in this governing structure. Something the early church in the New Testament did not have. In the West in particular, especially in America, our government has been founded upon this idea of lex rex, which means the law is king. That means the highest authority is not the king, but the law above him. Even the king has to obey the law. And this was popularized by another Presbyterian minister. His name is Samuel Rutherford. The king used to be able to just say whatever goes, goes. But as the Protestant thinking took root, eventually the Bible was applied to this area, and we saw that the law is even over the king. So what is the highest authority in the United States? 
Well, it's the one authority that every elected official swears to uphold and defend, and it's the U.S. Constitution. This is why we do not have kings, we do not have queens, we do not have emperors. They all get their derived or delegated authority from a legal document that hems in what authority they have and, which one, and what authority they do not have. So we ask ourselves the question, does the Constitution grant mayors and governors to strip God-given rights during emergencies? I think the answer is clear, no. If your rights can be taken away because the situation is not perfect, then they are not God-given rights. They're privileges that you get to enjoy as long as the government says you can enjoy them. But if they are indeed given to us by God, then they do not disappear at any point in time. So Romans 13 applies, I think, best in this situation when you see that certain governing authorities are rebelling against the authority above them, the written laws of our society. So where am I in 2020 here in Minnesota? I'm glad you asked. My conviction is that state and federal law is being ignored by our governor. He just doesn't seem to care. He probably is doing these things out of a good desire, but he's doing untold harm in his actions. Our governing structure is set up in such a way that we are to, supposed to have a state house and a state senate because then all these diverse interests of our state are represented as we make laws. And that helps to refine what laws are actually made so that we don't miss things or that our rules aren't jaded to one side or the other. Governor Walls throughout this whole thing has appealed to the peacetime emergency declaration part of the, of the Minnesota um, statutes. And if this was before 2005, he'd be right to do so. But in 2005, or before 2005, that, that part of state law had an issue or had a line in it that said that this also applies to public health emergencies. In 2005, through the legislative process by duly elected officials, they got rid of that. They struck it from state law, and they added a whole new section to Minnesota law. And that whole new section covered things like pandemics. What should the state do when there's a pandemic? Well, that entire section, which Walls seems to pretend doesn't exist, places severe limitations on who they can tell to do what. You can only isolate or quarantine individuals who are sick or who have been in direct contact with someone who's sick. And even to do that, you've got to go get court orders to do those things for those specific individuals. Walls pretends like that part of the law doesn't exist. So it's my conviction that whether or not Walls is a good guy or not, or whether or not his motives are good, or whether or not they are doing good, the authority of the law and the will of the people and the U.S. Constitution are being blatantly ignored, which means your neighbors and mine are being oppressed right now by one-man rule in this state. As a pastor, I can't look out both at those who are dying from COVID and also those who are losing everything they've worked for, who are suffering now from depression and all these other things and not be moved by such things. Our founding fathers went to war over no taxation without representation. I would say no lockdowns without representation. We have an elected branch of the government, the state house and state senate, who represent you. And when the governor says, I'm not going to listen to them, he means he's not going to listen to you. He's going to do whatever he wants. 
Now, some of you may disagree with me on that. I think that's fine. But we need to do these things with our Bibles open, applying the principles of what Scripture says. Our default position is obedience. But it is never blind. So moving forward, how should you and I, as Christians, interact with the government? Well, first, we're not anarchists. Second, we're not blind followers. Never should we go to the state for salvation instead of God. There's one thing we can learn from this. Hopefully, it's this. The government is not God, so don't treat it as such. The best thing you can do moving forward throughout the rest of your life in your interaction with the government is recognize that Jesus Christ is king over you even in that sphere of your life and then therefore live as free men and free women. These rights are given to you by God and no one, not even an oppressive government, can take them from you. The Christian knows this and lives in great confidence that it is God who reigns and he alone so we live that way, standing firm in what God has said, in that Christ is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and that no government can overthrow the church. Jesus promised that not even the gates of hell will bring down my church. And if we remain faithful, that will remain true. So live knowing that Christ is both God and King, and not the state, and that the state can't save you, but Christ has by dying on a cross for your sins and rising in victory over sin, death, and Satan so that he would establish his eternal kingdom here on earth. As we just went through Christmas, the government will be upon Christ's shoulders. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are indeed King of kings and Lord of lords and that your kingdom is hastening toward us. Lord, may we not be blind by the things of this life. May we not be blind to what you have done for us. We ask, Lord, that we might be men and women who live in great confidence that we have a relationship with that King of Kings and that we have a home in a kingdom that is not ultimately of this world, but that is invading this world and that will come to an eternal reality. May we find hope and confidence, and boldness in your word, in your gospel, and in your grace. Amen.